When I was a freshman at A&M, I lived in a dorm on Southside called Dunn Hall. I don't know if we've got any Dunn Hall people in here this morning. Maybe one. I just heard maybe one person. Uh, so Dunn Hall at the time was an all-male dorm. And the very first week that I was there, uh, one of the resident advisors came up to me and my roommate and said, we have an opportunity for you to represent the dorm at the first, uh, I think it was actually at the first yell practice. And we said, well, that sounds great. What's the opportunity? And they said, you can be a letterhead. Now, I don't know if they still do this anymore on many of the dorms or any. Uh, so you may have the same question that I had, which is, what does it mean to be a letterhead? And they said, well, it sounds, uh, or it is just like it sounds, we will uh, shave a letter onto the top of your head. And uh, what you get to do is at the first yell practice, uh, all of these freshmen with letters on your heads, you're going to spell out some kind of slogan or phrase that will represent our dorm before the student body. It's a huge honor, they said. And I said, man, I'm skeptical. I don't know that it's a huge honor. It's not that I'm opposed to representing our dorm. I'm just skeptical. And it sounds like there's a lot of pain and humiliation and uncertainty about what you're actually going to have me spell. And I don't know that I want that job. And so they, man, they laid it on thick. They said, look, you get to be a high position of honor to represent your dorm. And I said, be that as it may, I'd like to do that in in other ways, right? They said, you know, the reality is that women love letterheads. The girls really dig it. And, I, you know, I thought, I am not, like, I've never been an expert on what girls would want, but I've never been at a wedding where the story began, look, I saw, I saw him from across campus, and he had a G on his head, and I was just smitten. Like, I never had heard of that happening. So I was like, okay, I don't think this is for me. It may be a fantastic position of leadership to represent Dunn Hall before the university, but it sounds like a whole lot of uncertainty, a whole lot of pain. I don't want that job. The benefit doesn't outweigh the cost. Often I think when we are called to a task by God, we have the same response. I think a lot of times when we read the scripture and we see what the scripture is calling us to do and to be, When we see that the scripture calls us as those who have trusted in Jesus, the scripture calls us to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to spend our days and our lives seeking to know him and to spend our time and our energy on the priorities of his kingdom and then to move out into the world at our place of work, in our neighborhood, in our family and actually proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and go, wait a second, I'm not sure that the benefit of doing that is gonna outweigh the pain. God, you're asking me to change the way that I think. You're asking me maybe to change the things that I take into my heart and my mind. You're asking me, to do things that might upset the apple cart in my relationships. And there's a lot of uncertainty in that. If I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ, if I follow Jesus Christ with my time, my money, my energy, my speech, with my heart, what I might find is that puts me at odds with people around me and with the culture around me. That's a lot of pain. And I'm not sure the payoff is worth it. If you feel that way, when you read the scripture, or when you hear about God's call on your life, 
as a child of God, then I think the story of Moses this morning is going to speak to you profoundly. Because all of the excuses that you and I have and all of the reasons that you and I have for why we say, I am not the person, God, to do what you're calling me to do. All those reasons, Moses thought of them first. So if we say, God, I am unqualified to speak the gospel because I don't know the scripture that well. I'm not that eloquent. Moses said it before you did. If you say, look, I've got a past And if I go out into the world and I begin to proclaim the truth and the values of the gospel, my past is going to come into play and embarrass me. Believe me, Moses was there before you were. If you just simply say, you know what, I'm I'm afraid and I don't want to go. I want to stand still. Moses was there before you were. And Moses is going to find, as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to be in Exodus 2 through 4, Moses is going to find what I hope that we will find as we seek to pursue Jesus. And it's this, God is not a malicious upperclassman with an electric razor. He's good. And he's faithful. And God's goal in sending us out as his ambassadors and sending us into the world to reflect him, his goal is not to embarrass, to humiliate. His goal instead is to say, I want you to be right in the center of who I made you to be and what I made you to do. You were made for a purpose, to know and worship God and to reflect him. And so we, like Moses, stand right on the edge of what could be an amazing adventure as we pursue God, but we often shrink back. And all all we're going to say as we get through this message this morning is this, will you and I, as God calls us, will we simply say, God, here I am, I'll go wherever you take me, right? Whether that is a particular uh, place in my workplace or in my neighborhood or even around the world, I will go where you take me and I will obey as you call. In other words, God, my life is yours, it belongs to you, so send me where you will. I want to go with open hands. Right? Will we trust ultimately this? If God has called you to something, if he's called you to the task, you can trust that he knows exactly what he's doing. God hasn't called you by accident. There's a reason you are a part of the body of Christ. There's a reason that you know him. And we'll see, Peter's going to say, to proclaim the excellencies of the one who's called you out of darkness into light. If you and I have fears, excuses, problems, Moses had them first. We're going to see that as we walk through the passage. And then we're going to see how God answers Moses' objections. So let me remind you for a minute of Moses' story. We began this last week. Uh, We have a lot of material in Exodus 2 through 4. I don't have time to read all of it today. I am going to read large sections of it. But some of it I will summarize. You may remember last week we read portions of Exodus 2. And one of the things we talked about is how Moses is born in this time of crisis, right? He's born in this era where the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, are enslaved in Egypt. And as they're enslaved in Egypt, they continue to grow. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he comes up with all kinds of strategies to destroy them all together, primarily by destroying their infant boys, right? And the final strategy we see here at the end of chapter one is Pharaoh says, look, 
Let's throw all the baby boys into the Nile. All the Hebrew boys, just toss them into the Nile so that they will drown. Right, so that plan begins to go into effect. But it says in Exodus chapter 2, there's this, this one family, they're descendants of Levi, of the priestly tribe of Israel. They have a baby. And it says this mom, just like all moms, she sees her baby boy and she says he's beautiful. And so she doesn't want to kill him. And so she hides him. But he gets bigger like babies do. He begins to make more noise and more noise so she can't hide him anymore. So here's what she does. She gets a basket. And you know the story. And she puts that basket on the Nile River. Right? And I love just sort of her little rebellious streak. She goes, yeah, I'll put him in the Nile. I'll throw him in the Nile. But I'm going to give him a life raft. And she sends him down the river. And his sister Miriam follows at a distance to see where God moves the course of the Nile River as that baby floats down the river. And wouldn't you know it, that baby washes up right at the palace of the king of Egypt, right at Pharaoh's shore, where his daughter takes pity on the child. And Moses' sister Miriam shows up and she says to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like a nurse for the baby? Because I know the perfect person. And so she takes Moses back to his own mother. And so what we see right away is Moses is born in this time of crisis and he's got a foot in both worlds, right? So he lives in the palace of Pharaoh. He's raised by Pharaoh's daughter. So he knows the king's household and he understands the customs of Egypt. But he also has a foot in the world of the Hebrews and he knows his own people and he knows their plight. And he would have grown up probably hearing the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as well as the stories of Egypt. So that when Moses comes to age, comes of age, he begins to take on this identity as a deliverer of the Hebrews. And here's how we know he takes that identity on, because he tries to deliver the people, but he tries to accomplish their deliverance through murder. Look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So Moses seems to say, and in fact, Stephen would say this later on in Acts, Moses uh, believed that everybody would understand that he's supposed to deliver the nation. So he kills this Egyptian guy. He's a freedom fighter. But it doesn't turn out well for him. Because what happens is this, he's humbled by his sin, by his mistake, and he's exiled to Midian. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 13. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So Moses is humbled by this mistake. He realizes a great goal, wrong method. He tries to solve the problem through killing somebody. So he experiences these consequences for his sin. He goes to Midian. 
Let me summarize uh, the rest of this portion. Sits down by a well. Seven daughters of the priest of Midian show up to water their flocks, and they're being harassed by some local shepherds. So Moses drives those shepherds away, helps these ladies fill up their water jars, and then he gets an invitation to the household of the priest of Midian. Now, one thing you need to know is in the ancient world, if you went to eat dinner with a guy who had seven daughters, the odds were extremely high you would end up married to one of them. And that's exactly what happens. Moses gets married. Moses has a child. He creates a life in Midian. And in fact, he would be in Midian for 40 years. From the time he's about 40 to the time he's about 80. Right, but what we see with Moses right from the beginning, you say, man, Moses is this great leader, this great deliverer. But you know what we see with Moses right from the beginning of his life is Moses is sinful. He has a past. And that past haunts him. And his sin is actually going to come into play even throughout his life. What is Moses' besetting sin? Anger that leads to violence, right? So he kills this Egyptian in a moment of anger. Later, we will see Moses smash the tablets that hold the Ten Commandments because he's angry. We'll see him grab a staff and strike a rock when God had told him to speak to the rock because he's angry. In fact, Moses' anger would eventually disqualify him personally from entering into the promised land. So Moses is this sinful guy. Right, so if any of us say, look, I, I cannot be an ambassador for Jesus Christ because I've got a past, right? There are things in my past that if they came out to light would disqualify me. Moses got to that excuse before us. In fact, if God only used people without a past, very few people would be left. So right off the bat, we see that Moses has some problems, and yet God's going to call him out and say, you are the one I want to use, even though you're a sinner. I'm going to read now a number of verses from chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, go over to Exodus chapter 3. Because this is the critical part of our story this morning. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is later going to be called Sinai as we move throughout uh, this uh, book of Exodus. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And drop down to verse 10. He says, therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. 
But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So here's what happens. Moses in the wilderness, is, and you know the story, he sees this burning bush. He steps aside to take a look at it, and out of the bush, God calls him. And God says, Moses, I want you to go be my agent of deliverance. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the land, I promise. And I love this. God says, if you want a sign that I'm with you, here's the sign. Once you've done the job, you'll come back here and worship at this mountain. And I love that because God goes, the sign, in order to get the sign, you got to go first, right? So Moses begins to launch all of these explanations for why he's not the guy, right? This is his, what you might call his anti-resume. I don't know if you have ever had to create a resume for a job. Uh, The very first time I had to do that, I didn't yet have a lot of job experience. So I put everything on the resume that could possibly qualify me, right? Babysitting jobs, yard work for my mom, like whatever it was that I thought might qualify me. That's what you did in a resume. Moses gives the anti-resume. He says, here are all the reasons, God, that I can't do what you're asking me to do. And the first one is this. He says, I am unimportant. I'm nobody. What's his first objection? He goes, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and tell him to let these people go. And he kind of has a point, right? We remember Moses as this great leader, but at this point, Moses has been a shepherd in Midian for 40 years. Whatever relational connections he had back in Egypt are probably long gone. Whatever name recognition or clout he had back in Egypt, it's probably not there anymore, right? So he's got a valid point. Nobody's going to know who I am. I haven't been preparing to be a politician or the leader of a nation, right? I remember when I was a kid, uh, nine or 10 years old, one day it occurred to me that my dad had just turned 35 years old. And I remember thinking, you know what? Constitution says that if you're 35, you can be the president of the United States, And so I went to my dad and I said, dad, you need to go for it. You need to run. You're 35. You can do this, right? And and my parents were both kind of sitting there. And I remember my mom said something to the effect of, "Uh, son, you've got to realize that nobody would take him seriously. And my dad said, I I don't know about nobody, right? Maybe one or two, (laughs) maybe one or two people would take me seriously. But by and large, it's true. I have not been preparing for that role. My name's not in the public eye. I wouldn't have a shot. Who am I to take that kind of position? That's where Moses stands at this moment. He goes, you've got to be kidding me. Me? And what's remarkable is God doesn't say to Moses, hey man, you got to have some more self-esteem. Buck up. I mean, you're killing it as this Midianite shepherd. That's not what he says. What does God say? Moses, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. It's not about people knowing who you are. It's about who I am. Who am I? I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He'll say, I am 
who I am. We'll talk about that more in just a few minutes. Moses says, who am I? God says, no, 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 no. Who am I? You go because the power for your task doesn't come from your name and reputation. Right? You say, I'm just, I'm just a person, right? I'm just a normal person in a medium-sized town at a normal job. Nobody knows who I am. I'm not significant. I'm not important in any way. Who am I to be a representative of the living God? And I think God would say to us, no, not, not who are you. Who is God? If the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you because you believed in Jesus Christ, then God's power is sufficient for whatever task he's called us to do. So Moses says, I'm unimportant. His next objection is this one, simply that he's afraid. Look at chapter 4. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand, grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water, will take, the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. These signs are going to become significant as we move throughout the rest of our story in future weeks. But, but essentially, what is Moses' objection? They're not going to believe me, right? I'm going to walk into Egypt and I'm going to say, hey, God says that I'm supposed to lead you out of slavery. I'm going to walk into Pharaoh's palace and say, God told me that you need to let them go. Nobody will believe me. And again, he has a point. Right, Even in, in Moses' day, if you walked out of the wilderness after having been there for 40 years and you said, I'm the guy that's supposed to deliver you out of slavery and the people go, how do you know that? Why should we trust you? Who are you? You say, well, God told me. How did God tell you? Through a shrub that was burning in the wilderness. And they're going to say, okay, there are, there are places for people like you. Pharaoh has dungeons. You need to be examined. Right? Moses' fear is not irrational. And so God provides. He says, you're right. They may not believe you, so let me give you some signs. And these signs will be significant again in coming weeks because each of these signs ultimately, including the plagues that are to come, they demonstrate God's power, not only over Pharaoh, not only over the Israelites, but God's power to do all the things that the Egyptian gods claimed that they could do. So that God will say, I am the only true God. You're afraid, you go in my courage. You feel unimportant, 
You go by the strength of my name, not your own. Moses will then next say, I'm, I'm not only unimportant, afraid, unqualified, sin, or, uh, afraid, unimportant, sinful, I'm also unqualified. Look at verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and even I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. All right, so his next objection is, look, look, I'm not a really good speaker. You need to find somebody who has been on the Egyptian conference circuit just a little bit more than I have. I'm not the guy. Now, Moses might actually be underselling himself because in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Stephen would later say, Moses is the ma- a man of power in both word and deed, right? But it's also possible that that was later in his life. At this moment, Moses is saying, look, the only people that I've really talked to for the last 40 years are sheep. I'm not qualified. I'm not the guy. I was thinking about it this week. I thought, what would I say if God came to me and he said, Matt, I want you to glorify me as a painter of beautiful vistas. And I would go, God, you've seen my drawings. Right? You've seen my artwork. My dad can draw. My son can draw. That gene skipped a generation badly. Right? So I'm the dad. The kids say, can you please draw me a horse? And I try. And I draw something that gives them nightmares for weeks, right? Not intentionally. I just can't do it. I remember still in fourth grade, we were assigned to draw something and place it up on the wall. And I remember the other fourth graders, remember the artistic standards of fourth grade are are pretty low. But they laughed at my drawing because I I can't do it, right? So God says, Matt, I want you to paint. I want you to draw. I go, what are you talking about? Moses goes, you want me to speak? What are you talking about? You say, God, you want me to tell people about Jesus? I I barely know this scripture. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I, I trip over my words. God, you want me to be a patient and kind and loving person. I'm not patient. I struggle with anger and bitterness. How can I represent you? Right? That's just my personality. It's just, it's just angry. I'm an Enneagram 9, and that will never change. So God, who, who am I? I'm unqualified. Say, God, you, you want me to, to serve in the church, to help with, with kids, with youth? Youth terrify me. I can't do that. And what is God going to say ultimately? We're going to see that God is going to going to move Moses to recognize. It's God's qualifications that matter. What does he say? Hey, buddy, I I made your mouth. I think I know what I'm doing. I'm not making a mistake. What is Moses' last response? Well, he just says, "I'm, I'm unwilling. The very last thing that Moses says here, verse 13, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will, right? And you can read into that, just not me. Anybody else, just not me. You can sense Moses' fear, frustration with this conversation. 
God, the the desert has got to be filled with unsuspecting idiots willing to go talk to Pharaoh. Find another one. Just not me. And at this point, it says God's anger actually burned against Moses. And he says, I want you to go. I've told you to go. But we're going to see, even in God's anger, there's grace. Because he says, I'm going to send your brother. You're afraid. You're unqualified. Okay, I'm going to send you some help. All right, so I look at Moses' list here and I say, yeah, 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 yeah. Like all of those are me. All of those are reasons that on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, I say, these are reasons why, God, I don't, I don't know if you want me. Pick somebody else. God, I'm afraid that if I begin to move toward you, in a way that is going to transform my life and maybe the lives of those around me, if I begin to do that, I'm going to experience resistance and heartache and pain. I'm going to have to change how I think about my time, my money, my relationships, my job, my career, even my family. God, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know that I am deeply unqualified for what you've asked me to do. I know what goes on in my own mind and heart. I know the things that my hands and feet have done that have been disobedient to you. I resonate with that list. Maybe you do too. And ultimately, God would say this, Moses, it's not about you. It's about who God is. Who is God in this passage? And who is God throughout all of the Scripture and all of time? God is always faithful. God is always faithful. When Moses first says, hey, what if they ask me who you are? What is your name? What should I tell them? You can almost sense in God's response a a, a sort of like, what do you mean? I am who I am. Moses, look where you are. You're standing in front of a burning bush that is not consumed. And the voice of God is speaking to you from the bush. I am who I am. And in fact, the name of God, Yahweh, from the Hebrew language, would be derived from this verb, I am. I am who I am. And he goes on to say, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why is that significant? Because this is the God who had made promises to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to go to the land that I send you to. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants will multiply like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. I'm that God that promised that to Abraham. Moses, look over there in Egypt. How many Israelites are there? They keep multiplying like the sands on the seashore. I'm also the God who made a promise to Abraham that I would lead the people into a land of milk and honey, into a beautiful land. And he's a faithful God. And the God who has always kept his promises will continue to keep his promises. Moses, where do you think you are? Who do you think you're talking to? Imagine that for some reason you got summoned to Buckingham Palace and you're in the presence of the queen. And the queen says, I want you to deliver a message to this nation that we are going to war. Turns out the queen of England still has that power to declare war. So she says, I want you to take that message. And you go, great. Remind me, who, what's your name again? She's likely to go, where are you? 
you're in Buckingham Palace. What's this on my head? It's a crown. I'm the monarch of England with a history that goes back thousands of years. Go deliver the message. God says, I am who I am. I am who I've always been. I am who I always will be into eternity. Always faithful to his promises. Moses, you can trust that if you will step forward in faith, I'll carry this promise through to its completion. God is always present. Several times in this passage, in response to Moses' objections, God says, look, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. I'll go with your mouth. I'll go with you. I am with you. So Moses You can step forward knowing that the presence of God will never leave you. We talked about this last week, how the presence of God would become one of the defining features of the people of Israel. They saw the presence of God as they traveled through the wilderness, either in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of flame. They saw the presence of God when the the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies. The presence of God rested on the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God was always with them. God says, I'm the one that is with you. Moses, you need to know if you go, you don't go alone. If you know Jesus Christ, you need to go. When, you need to know that when you leave these doors this morning and you go out into our community and out into our world and out into your family, the Spirit of God goes with you. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. He goes with you. A couple of weeks ago, my son was invited to a neighbor's birthday party. And uh, what they decided to do for this birthday party was to go to the rec center at A&M and go uh, rock climbing up the, up the climbing wall at A&M. Now, I don't do this a lot. I know some of you are big climbers. I'm not a really big climber, so it's pretty scary if you don't do this every day. But I thought, I've got to be kind of brave so that my son will also be brave and decide to climb the wall. Now, it turns out my particular son has no no problem with that. Uh, he would have climbed it without ropes. But for me, I thought, okay, I got to do this. So uh, I, you know, I put on the harness. I'm attached to the rope. I've got a belayer here who works at the rec center. She's got me belayed and, and hooked into the ground. So I climb up to the top. And then when I get up to the top, every single time, there's always a terrifying moment once I reach the top. Because the question is now, how will I get down? And there are two ways to get down. One is you can climb very painstakingly back down, right? Uh, Handhold and foothold by handhold and foothold all the way down. But usually for me, I was too tired by the time I got to the top to do that. We had one guy in our group that that was his approach. The other approach is you let go. And you let the rope hold you as you bounce your feet back down that wall and as your belayer slowly lowers you to the ground. But in order to do that, you got to make sure that that person is holding you at the bottom, right? And so I would always get up there and there'd be that moment and I would hear this young woman from the ground. She'd go, I got you. You can let go. And I go, okay, you got me? Yeah, I got you. I'm still here. Are you sure you're still there? Because I cannot actually see you. You're behind me. No, I got you. Okay, here we go. And I'd hold on for a while. But eventually that moment comes where you go, either I stay here for the rest of my life 
or I let go, and everything in your mind goes, if I let go, I die, right? But you got to do it and trust that she's still holding you down there. So I'd let go, and that rope would grab me and lower me down. And here's what God is saying to Moses. Moses, I got you. I got you. You don't carry the weight. I carry the weight. You don't have to save these people. I will save these people. All I'm asking of you, Moses, is just go where I tell you to go. I want to use you. But it's not ultimately about your strength, your power, your qualifications. If God goes with you, you can trust that the job will be completed. He is always present. Lastly, he is always gracious. Always gracious. What I love about this passage is as Moses keeps throwing up these objections, God responds, but God always provides. So Moses says, look, they're not going to believe me. God says, I'll give you some signs. He says, I'm not a very good speaker. He says, I'm going to go with your mouth. And and ultimately, in verses 14 to 17, God says, I'm going to send your brother with you. I'm going to provide. See, even as God's frustration and anger burns toward Moses for his disobedience, God says, but I'm going to be gracious. I'll answer your objections and provide all that you need and more to do the job. And, and, and we see this pattern with God throughout the Scripture because this type of grace is His character. That as Israel would wander away in their sin, God would graciously draw them back. Both His discipline and His kindness would draw them back to Himself. And ultimately, His grace would culminate in sending His Son, Jesus, to die for the sins of a world that was rebellious against Him so that we can have eternal life. So God says, Moses, go. I've got you. You and I are are, are called, right? We're called, of course. We're not called to the same thing Moses is called to. We are not called to deliver a nation out of slavery. But the Scripture says we're called to certain things. For example, we are called to eternal life. We're called to know God through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, you are called to trust in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is always calling. If you don't know God through Jesus Christ this morning, know that the Spirit of God is calling you to believe and know that you have eternal life. We've been called to eternal life out of darkness into light. We are called to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, you are called to reflect Jesus' love and patience and truthfulness and kindness to those around you. That's hard. It requires me to think differently at times to believe differently about God and myself, to act differently. It requires me to study and know his word, to take time to do that. It requires me to pray, to get on my knees and say, God, I am unqualified because I'm impatient and unloving 
and angry and untruthful. But we're called. We are called to endure suffering with patience. First Peter chapter 2. For this finds favor with God, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. This is where we come back to that moment where we say, okay, God has called me, but I'm afraid. If I follow Jesus, I might suffer unjustly. I might experience social consequences, relational consequences, personal consequences. And the scripture says, that's your calling. But guess what? Because God is good, because God can be trusted. We also know that when we step forward, we have the opportunity to follow him right in the center of who he made us to be. To know that despite the suffering and the pain and the cost of following Jesus, the reward, the benefit far outweighs the cost because of all his promises of eternal life with him and a joy that surpasses and a peace that surpasses understanding. And then we are called to proclaim God's praises. We read this passage last week. It relates to the title of our series, Kingdom of Priests. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, called to proclaim him. Sinful, insignificant, afraid, unqualified, and often unwilling. And God says, I've called you to go. The message is not how great you are. The message we take to those around us, the message we take to those who need to know is simply this, that we worship a God who calls you even while you're a sinner, who gives you eternal life even though you don't deserve it because he loves you. And the message isn't that I'm so good I get to deliver this message. The message is that's what God did for me. And he'll do it for you too. We worship a delivering God from slavery into freedom, from darkness into light. So here's the question very quickly then as we close. is simply this. Will we obey what God has called us to do, trusting that he knows what he's doing? All, all I'm hoping we walk away with from this sermon this morning is, is simply this. Will I come before the Lord and say, God, my life is yours? Okay, that, inc that includes how I, how I use my body. That includes the things that I take into my heart and my mind. That includes how I spend my money. That includes how I arrange my time and the priorities that I set within my family for my time includes what I think about and what I believe. And will I say, God, all of it is yours. Here I am. Send me where you call. To lay myself before him and say, God, I am afraid. I am unqualified. I am all of these things Moses said that he was, just like Moses was. But I trust a faithful, all-powerful, and gracious God. So send me. 
Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this morning. We confess that our own hearts are no different from what we see in Moses in this passage. There are days where we say, yeah, put me in, send me out. And then there are days where we say, God, just send somebody else, anybody else. Because walking with you is hard at times. But it's also joyful and glorious beyond measure. And Father, sometimes we, we simply have to believe that even when we can't see it. And so we pray you'd strengthen our faith through the power of your Spirit. Give us the words to say in those moments when you call us to speak the truth about Jesus. And give us the strength to turn away from sin and toward you. And give us the strength to continue trusting in you and your faithfulness in Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.